chores and fighting among you, can they not hate, even if you lust after war in your members, lust and necessity, kill and desire to have, you cannot obtain, buy you more, yet you do not have, because you ask not, he asks and everything not, because he ask in this, that you may consume it upon lust, and indulgences and indulgences. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is in the deep of God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is in me, the enemy of God. Oh, sorry. Do you think the scripture saved in vain? The spirit that dwells in us lusts to me. So he starts again with a question. What's his question? Yeah. You ever have any quarrels, any fightings, any conflicts? Mostly with who? Siblings or friends, parents. Well, what's the source of that? Where do those conflicts come from? Now, where do you get that strife and, and, and fightings? What does he say? Really, when it all comes down to you know, the hostility, the outbursts were because of their own desires. They were selfish. Now, they would have probably blamed their circumstances. They would have probably said they were being mistreated and they just needed to stand up for their rights and all that. We always make our bad behavior look good by what we say about it. They said, in truth, it's really all because of these desires. You want to have your own way. And you think about the quarrels you have. Isn't that the reason? You want to have your own way? You want things for yourself? You don't like it when you don't get what you want? He says, that's what's causing it, guys. Um, verse 2 is uh, hard to punctuate. Punctuation was not the original. I think it's best in the New American Standard in this case. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You know, they wanted, but they didn't get. You know, when, when you want, 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 you'll never be satisfied. You will always have frustration and disappointment. And so when they wanted and they didn't have, what did he say they did? They murdered. That was designed to startle. They murdered? Whoa. I don't think he probably means they have actually literally murdered anyone. Although I must say, cannot frustrated desire lead to actual murder? Can you think of somebody in the Bible that killed because he couldn't get what he wanted? Yeah, but David more to cover up his sin. Ahab killed who? Naboth and his sons because he wanted that vineyard. And he couldn't get it, so he just bumped him off so he could have it. You know, that's the kind of spirit that frustrated desire leads to. Maybe you only murder with your words. 
or with your looks. But it's still that kind of mentality. He says you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now again, I don't suppose mostly they'd come to physical blows over it. But they were verbally fighting and quarreling. They, they, were, they were, you know, having a lot of tension and strife between them because they wanted what the other one had. Envy, frustrated desire, selfish ambition, that's the, the soil that strife and quarreling comes from. You can think about it in churches, the same thing. When you get a lot of quarreling people in churches, it's exactly because of this. It's because of selfish desires that are not being fulfilled to meet their expectations. He really wants you to stop and look at it. He says you don't have because you don't ask. Well, if you did ask, when you do ask, you don't get it either. Why don't they get it when they do ask? What are they asking for? Yeah, their own selfish desires. Uh, well, if you got, if you girls could have anything material that you wanted, what would you like? A really nice car. Oh, that, that's the boys' answer too. But I was, I was interested in the first class. They did not answer with the same type of car that the boys did. What, what do you want, car wise? What would you like? Yeah, Lamborghini, I heard. That was every boy's class. <laughs> I thought that's impractical. What do you want? I want a lime green Ford Frisia. You got it. You got the even down to the color. I don't even know what a Ford Frisia is. I guess it is. What do you want that I've heard of? A truck. Yeah. Why is it the girls are asking for the truck and the guys weren't? That doesn't make much sense. I finally got the guys to settle on Corvette, but but we'll say a truck. You know. So uh, so would you pray and ask God to get you that truck? Why not? Not just that. Well, I don't need it. Yeah, it's for selfish. It's just something you want. You know, you wouldn't ask God to just help you fulfill your own personal desires. You ask God that His will be And uh, But they were just so filled with what they wanted for themselves that they didn't even ask for just their own will to be done as they pray. They really have a bad attitude. In verse 4, he shocks them again. James is not above, you know, saying things that are really kind of startling. What does he call them in verse 4? Adulteresses. Whoa, that's really strong. Why does he call them adulteresses? Were they messing around with their husbands? Yes, because they are married to God, but they're not being faithful to their marriage vows. They were flirting with the world and with other things. And he says, this is very hard to translate, verse 5, and hard to understand. But I think what he's saying is, do you think the scripture doesn't mean anything when it talks about God being jealous? Do the scriptures say that God is jealous? Yeah. But that sounds wrong. Like, God's not supposed to be jealous. We're not supposed to be jealous. Well, 
think of it this way. What if you had a, a woman who was married and she came to her husband one day and she said, listen, would you mind if I spend the night with Bob tonight and maybe Steve tomorrow night and Tom the next night? And what if he says, oh yeah, sure, spend the night with whoever you want to, I don't care. What would you think about that husband? He doesn't care much about her. He really doesn't love her. If he really loved her, he would not be willing to share her with other guys. You really don't want to be married to a guy who would be fine with you just sleeping around with anybody. Because it would mean he didn't really value the relationship with you. God values the relationship with us and he refuses to share us with the world or anybody else. He expects us to have exclusive faithfulness to him. And he accuses us of being adulterous. If we flirt around with the world or with anything else, they were so tempted by this double-mindedness, the world and God, themselves and God, and God's saying, that makes you a betrayer of your marriage covenant with me. Comments or questions about that? Six to ten. Well, in verse 6, God gives a greater grace. I think God always gives what he requires. So he will graciously help us have the undivided allegiance to God that he's asking us for. But only if we're humble, not if we're proud. And then look at verse 7. Submit to God. Submit means what? Yeah, obey. Do what God wants you to do. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Now the devil's powerful, but God is more. So we can resist the devil, but I want you to think about how Satan is sort of like a dog. What happens if there's a stray dog and you feed it some scraps? It's going to come back. What if you keep feeding it? You have a dog. <laughs> Isn't that the way that goes? Now what happens if there's a stray dog that comes around and you don't let it have even a crumb? Yeah, it won't take long before that dog will scamper off to somewhere else where, you know, there's a little bit more, uh, you know, things to eat. Satan's like that. What happens if you start giving in to Satan and you start committing some sins? It's ruined. You know, you've got yourself a dog. What happens if you starve him out? You don't give him even a crumb. Eventually, he'll get discouraged and he'll trot off to somebody else. I'm not saying he'll never come back, but the best way to keep Satan away is you don't give an inch. Now, 
maybe girls aren't like this, but I talk to guys who do these stupid things like, well, I was just thinking about the temptation so much. I was just wanting it so badly. I decided to go ahead and get in so I could give in, so I could get it out of my system. No. <laughs> Sinning never gets it out of your system, it puts it in your system. The only way to deal with sin is cold turkey. Just totally abstain, you don't give an inch. Every time you give in, Satan just is asking you that much more, that much harder. I like trying to give up cigarettes or something. I never smoke. But I understand that every time you smoke a little bit again, it puts the whole nicotine craving back in your system. So the only way to give it up is 100% total, right then, no anything. We always need to just not commit sin, period. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Make sense? Then look at verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Now I realize that you girls are all way too young to ever have an interest in a guy. But another 20 or 30 years, you might get interested in some, some man. And uh, maybe you've seen some older uh, girls that got interested in a guy, and they start kind of drawing near to him. You know, I really don't know what girls do to get near to a guy, but I mean, maybe talking to him more, yeah. Do they write him a note? Do they send a girlfriend to tell him they like him? I don't know. What do you do? What do girls do to get close to a guy? We just think about him. Do what? We just think about him. Well, you have to do something more, uh, you know, active to pursue him. But whatever it is girls do, you tell I'm really not in the female way for But whatever a girl does, have you ever have you ever seen a girl have this experience? She draws near to the guy and the guy backs off. Yes. How does that feel? My girl. Yes. Very painful. You know, you feel rejected, you feel hurt. It's horrible. And it's just really a painful experience if, if you've ever had that happen to someone much older than you. Uh, but it never works that way with God. You will never start to get closer to God and he just sort of backs away. No. You draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. In fact, you remember like the story of the prodigal son? When the prodigal son starts coming back home and he gets, he's still a ways away and the father sees him and what does the father do? Runs to meet him. Gives him a big hug and kiss and all that kind of stuff. That's the way God is. It's amazing, God. He loves you. You draw near to Him. You never have to worry. I wonder, I wonder if He'll just kind of give me the brush off. I wonder if He'll just back away. No, He won't. You draw near to Him, and He will draw near to you. He wants to be close to you. That is really cool. Now there's some things to take some apart. End of verse uh, 8, what does he say we need to do? He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now you understand the difference between the hands and the heart. The hands represent what you do, your actions, and the heart, your thoughts, 
your attitudes, your feelings, that kind of thing. So we need to, you know, plan what we do and our attitude. Notice if Ken calls him double-minded, that's what he called him back in verse 1. They really have this problem of trying to be in both directions, God and the world, God and themselves, and it won't work. They've got to purify it. They've got to be single-mindedly devoted to God if they want God to draw near to them. Comments and thoughts? Can you go back to verse 6? I'm still confused about this greater grace. What is it greater than? Well, I think it's greater than the need. So we need to be exclusively devoted to God. God will give us grace even beyond what we need to be able to accomplish. Tough passage, but I think so. Yes? Um, this, this section, I really like this. It's so practical, mostly. But it reminds me a lot of Romans 13 and verse 14. That's about putting on the Lord and then uh, just give no provision for the flesh. Yes. Like, not not an inch. <laughs> yes. And um, so that just kind of reinforcing that idea of you know flee the devil, like starving out the simple things that it will be easier to Excellent. That's exactly right. Other thoughts? In nine, this is probably the least likely sermon text. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Isn't that encouraging? <laughs> I thought we were always, always supposed to be happy. You know, you have joy when you're a Christian, don't you? Are you always happy? That doesn't sound like what this passage is saying, does it? Does it? Well, why are we supposed to be miserable and mourn and weep? Yeah. sin too casually, you know, and, and just take it too lightly, and we don't like feeling bad. We don't like the guilt that it causes us, and sometimes we just are looking for some way to feel good about ourselves. Well, we shouldn't feel good about ourselves when we're doing bad. We ought to be grieved and mourn. Jesus was a man of sorrow. Should his followers be men and women of pleasures? You know, we need to have the grief and sorrow that we ought to have. The idea of being joyful does not mean I'm always happy and smiling, everything's always wonderful. Our joy is to be in the Lord, and we do have an underlying joy of knowing the Lord, but there are many times, there are even times when Jesus wept, Paul wept. There's times to grieve. And we tend to avoid those because it doesn't feel good. But we really need that. You think about it. One of these days, probably many of you will have a child. And you will love that child more than you love yourself. Now let's say you had a wonderful opportunity when the child was born. You know, some angel comes down with a button. 
And if you push the button, that child will never ever experience any pain. Will you push that button for your child? No? Man, wouldn't that be awesome? Child wouldn't have any pain? Why wouldn't you push it? Yeah, pain's really helpful. It feels bad, but it helps you, yeah. That's a good point, too. The pain helps us feel better when we feel better. I had a friend in the congregation who had a car wreck. He was paralyzed from like his waist down, had no feeling in his lower extremities. A couple times he burned his feet really bad. He only knew it when he could smell them burning. Did he have any feeling? No, pain is good for us. And it helps us remember and not go back to it. Yeah. She wouldn't know it, yeah, exactly. It would be bad, Mark. And also, you wouldn't understand what Jesus meant. I mean, if you had no pain, you wouldn't be able to imagine even greater pain than So instead of us trying to always feel good, and when you feel guilty, you try to just do something so you don't feel it anymore. Let the pain and the sorrow help us do better. You know, if, if a child touches hot stove and feels the pain and the, it hurts him for a little while, he's more likely to remember not touching it. It's good for us when guilt increases. Don't get rid of that. So James says a lot of things that are kind of shocking when we first read them, but are really wise. Comments and thoughts on this section? Yes, Heidi. Um, I also really like this section as well, because I feel like it's taken me a really long time to have this sort of reaction to women in my life. And I feel like because it's taken me that long to have reactions about my sin in that way, I'm not really, I mean, I'm just not fully repentant like I needed to. And so, I feel like we're not having this sort of reaction to sin in general. We're not really dealing with this sin if we can't understand what this has done to God and what a barrier it's put between us and Him. Yes. Good point. Okay. Um, 11 and 12. Back to sins of tongue. Don't speak against your brothers. Who are you to try to climb up onto God's judgment seat that only God has the right to sit on? We need to be very careful about being overly critical and harsh toward our brethren. There's a time, certainly, out of love for our brethren to rebuke them, but being critical of them is not a good thing. Yes? Is that meaning like white brother, like just everybody? Probably here he means in, in, among Christians, though we shouldn't be overly critical of anybody, but I think here he means within Christians. Comments or questions about that? 13 to 17. 
Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we live and also do this and that. But as it is, you, you boast in your arrogance, such, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So, he uses the come now expression. Only verses in the New Testament that's used is here and in 5.1. He's trying to get their attention. You know, kind of like saying, wake up, come on, come now. You who say, and we're again back to sort of a sin of speech. Now, what were they saying? They're going to have their definite plans for their life. Yes, what they were saying was more or less rehearsing the steps of the plans that they had made for themselves. And what did their plans involve? Yeah. All kinds of stuff, really, wasn't it? Where they'd go, when they'd go, how long they'd stay, what they'd do, what the result would be. They had it all mapped out. They were very confident planners. They were decisive. They were deliberate. But now, is there anything wrong with that? We're not, we're not supposed to avoid planning, are we? What was wrong with them planning all this? Yeah, it's kind of funny. I mean, they've got this whole thing settled out in detail. They don't even know if they're going to exist for a whole year, let alone what they're going to do in that. Yeah. They were too sure of themselves, and they thought they knew what was they were kind of leaving God out of the picture, weren't they? I mean, it's like as if all of this was in their own control, where they could just do whatever they wanted to, where their own ability was the only factor. Do we ever think that? Do we ever act like that we are just in charge and basically we don't even think about the Lord, we just think about what we're deciding to do? Can you tell from this passage what their main thought was? What was their main goal? Prophet, isn't that like worldly people? You know, prophet, prophet, prophet. That goes back to one of James's main themes. I think again, he chooses this to show them you're too worried about money. Worldly people not only are really focused on the profit, but they usually have the habit of enjoying their pleasures before they get them. They probably got the money spent they were planning on earning before they ever go to the far country to make it. That's the way worldly people are. They're sure everything's going to turn out the way they want it. Now, what did he recommend for us? And that's interesting. Now, in a moment, I'll modify this slightly, but it is really helpful to learn to say things right because it helps us think things right. When I went to Brazil, uh, we were in Brazil from 93 to 96, and then I've been back 30-some times since then. I talk to Brazilians almost every day on the phone or Skype. I've talked to at least a couple today, but I remember maybe more than that. Um, and uh, actually three, I think. 
So it's, uh, you know, I'm always talking to them. And, and there are a couple of things that Brazilian Christians have a habit of that really help me. You know, if, I, if, if they ask me, como você está? How are you doing? And I say, still bang. I'm good. And I stop. There's a whole lot of times they'll say, Gracias a Deus. Thanks to God. And they'll kind of say it like that. Like as if you really shouldn't say you were doing well and not give God the credit for it. Or if they say, Quando você vai voltar? When are you going to come back? And I say, In October. In October. And if I stop right there, there's a lot of times that they'll say, See, Deus quiser. If God will. And kind of in an indignant tone, like, how dare you say what you're going to do and not recognize that it will be only if the Lord will. You know, that has really helped me. Because it's kind of like if I say something good, it comes to my mind to say thank God. A lot of times, a lot of times. Or if I say something I'm going to do, it comes to my mind to say, if God wills, a lot of the time. And for me, saying it has helped me think it. It's helped me recognize more the hand of God and what's happening. That it really, it changed my speech a lot. And my speech changed my thinking a lot. You look at the Bible, and there's so much emphasis on the Lord's involvement in every good thing. There's so much credit given to God. I think as a whole, we don't speak in God-centered terms like we should, probably because we don't think in God-centered terms like we should. Now, I understand that if God wills, it's not just some magic formula, that every time you say anything, tacking that on the end is gonna make it okay. There were an occasional time, for example, when Paul would say something was going to happen and he didn't say, if the Lord wills. But there's a whole lot of times that he and other Bible writers do say, if the Lord wills. So it's not like it just, you know, you can never say a word without saying, if the Lord wills. But if we were more conscious and aware of God's involvement, you know, we would, we would express that more. You know, what would happen, I haven't tried this illustration before, but what would happen if you were, you know, sitting around with your family and somebody asked, you know, um, are you going to go to the fair tonight? Would you say, sure. Or would you say, sure, if it's okay with my dad. For some of you, it's probably a lot better if you say the second. <laughs> you know, it expresses more respect and it's more accurate. You know, we ought to be kind of embarrassed sometimes to say all these things so confidently about what we're going to do and not even express well, it does have something to do with what the Lord wants. We become arrogant as if it's only for us. We depend on God's will in everything we do in every area of our life. We need to say it more, think it more, and live it more.
And he says in verse 17, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. If you know you ought to be expressing more your dependence on God and you don't, it's sin. Comments and questions? Yes. Why does it say like, even if you don't know what's right, it's still Well, I think he just said, you know, if you know you ought to do it, and you don't do it, it's wrong. Um, he's focusing on the fact they know better, and they're not doing it. That makes it even worse. Obviously, if you don't know better, you're not going to do it. But if you know better, you don't. Think about what that's like. Comments? Well, I think he's telling him to say it, or like, I don't know. Yeah, I think he's saying, if you know you ought to express your dependence on God, you don't. It's a... Five, one to six. Now you rich, weak and hollow, for your 